how do you sacrifice something so important to yourself when it doesn't feel right? How do you follow, how do you give such a big part of your humanity away, if that's really what you're doing, but how do you set it aside if you don't understand? Welcome to Listener. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Today's guest is Rachel Gilson. Rachel ministers with Crew at Boston University, and she also works on Crew's national theological development team. An MDiv student at Gordon-Conwell, her recent Christianity Today article entitled, I Never Became Straight, Perhaps That Was Never God's Goal, won second in its category for the Evangelical Press Association Awards. We discuss the article, her journey, and much more in the podcast today. Is there someone you'd like to hear interviewed on Listener? Email me at samantha.holland at crew.org. Enjoy the show. First of all, you've been published in Christianity Today twice, which is kind of a big deal. Yeah, it is. It is kind of a big deal, I guess. I certainly didn't think it was going to happen until it suddenly happened. How did it happen? Well, I, um, I have a friend at church who is sort of well-connected in the publishing world because of a previous job that she had. We got connected through church, and I happened to share my story with her one day. She kind of stopped and stared at me and said, well, gosh, you should, you should publish this in the New York Times. I was like, are you? That's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. And she said, well, well, maybe you could publish it in Christianity Today. And I, even that sounded like a crazy idea to me. And I was resistant to it at first, actually, because it just sounded like a lot of trouble. I don't know, putting a pretty personal story out into the world like that. At the same time, I had experienced that when people have heard my story, that they found it encouraging. Um, So I resisted at first. Ultimately, my friend was pressing on me through the angle of stewardship. (laughs) The story had been given to me by God to bless other people. And she really wanted me to consider Mm -hmm. um, putting it out into the world like that. And so after praying about it, I decided, okay, well, we'll just see. We'll write it up. We'll send it in. Maybe they'll want it. Maybe they won't. And um, they really did. They wanted it. And I actually found out, um, let's see, yesterday that it won a second in its category for the Evangelical Press Association Awards. For 2017. Wow. Which was kind of interesting because I'd actually never heard of these awards because I'm not a Christian journalism junkie, but I got an email mm-hmm. telling me, good job, you placed in your category. And I was like, oh gosh, I didn't even know that I was in a contest. So, <laughs> Do you read Christianity Today? Did you read it before you got published? I'm familiar with Christianity Today. I think like most evangelicals mm-hmm. are, but I'm, I think like most millennials, I'm pretty cheap when it comes to subscriptions. Mm-hmm. But they actually, once they agreed to publish my story, they gave me a free subscription for the year. So I was just reading my copy of the magazine yesterday on the couch. I was like, oh, it's so nice to have this magazine, you know? So I'm, I'm more of a reader now, actually, than I ever was before, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Well, I've subscribed for a few years, and I remember when your article came out, I think my husband handed me the magazine and said, this is written by a crew staff. You're a brilliant writer. I mean, first of all, it's just very well written. Well, thank you. And... You were an English major, right? No, I was a history major. Oh, a history major. But I love 
literature. In fact, the reason that I didn't major in English or literature is because I love it so much that I never wanted to make it work. Well, so your article starts out and kind of gets right to the point. I mean, the title is, I Never Became Straight. Perhaps that was never God's goal. So right at the beginning, you start telling your life story and explaining your parents weren't necessarily gay, but they met at a gay nightclub in San Francisco. Tell us some of your story from there. Yeah, so my mom had been raised Catholic, but ditched it really early. And then my father, so the, the father who raised me, my adopted dad, not my biological father, he had not been religious growing up himself. So by the time they were raising me and my brother in Southern California, we weren't churchgoers at all. It just wasn't a part of our life. We weren't even Christmas and Easter people. Uh, Even though the place that I lived in Southern California was relatively socially conservative. So I was surrounded by a lot of cultural Christians, or probably even real Christians. Um, So it was a fabric around me, but never a part of my home life or never a part of my family life. In the article, you say that you had your first boyfriend when you were 14. Yeah. And I think you said you broke up like teenagers do. That's right. And then you met who would be your first girlfriend the next year at 15. And she was the one that you really developed this bond with in every kind of way, right? Yes. Um, Tell us more about that. So we met because we were in a class together. She was a senior, I was a sophomore. And she knew that I was doing really well in the class, and she basically wanted to use me to study for a test. (laughs) But because she was a cool senior girl, I didn't mind. So I was like, oh, that's fun. I'm going to get to hang out with with this senior. And so I went over to her house to kind of have a study session. And we just immediately relationally clicked. We had a great personal chemistry which I'd experienced in some friendships at other times, but there was also with it this charge that felt to me like I liked her. You know, like in the way that my female friends talked about having crushes on boys. And, you know, I'd had a boyfriend and I'd uh, I'd sort of had other sillier boyfriends too. I've always really liked the company of guys, company of men. And so, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it seemed normal to have a boyfriend and that we would hang out and we'd talk about stuff and But this attraction level with her was really different. And I I had to sort of step back even after that night and process, is that really what I'm feeling? And if so, is that okay? You know, this was back in 2001. That's when Will and Grace was still edgy, you know, not not nostalgic. Um, So... I knew, I had a sense that the culture in general wasn't for homosexuality, but at the same time, I couldn't, I couldn't understand at all what could possibly be wrong with it. You know, I guess today that would be phrased, love is love. Yeah, you said in the article, I was vaguely familiar with the notion that church folk condemned such things. Yeah, I mean, it's... Part of the church's reputation, unfortunately, to be anti-LGBT. Mm-hmm. And I had picked that up without ever, you know, being a church member myself. Luckily, I never had any bad experiences personally with Christians discriminating against me or treating me poorly. 
But it was enough in the cultural air that I understood that Christianity was fundamentally against me in some way. So Rachel, after you found out that your girlfriend had left you for who you described as an undereducated semi-homeless guy in Lake Tahoe, where I've done two summer projects, so I understand. Oh, goodness. I understand the Lake Tahoe culture. Yeah. So the next section of your article is called Googling Jesus, because you said you found yourself in a philosophy class at Yale, um, a class that made you wonder whether or not there was a God. So tell us about what was happening as you took that philosophy class and started Googling religious things on the internet. So I came back to Yale second semester um, pretty broken. I was probably in the midst of an identity crisis on some level because getting to a school like Yale, everyone there was elite. So even though I had been an impressive student at my kind of lame public high school, I just was in a different league once I got to Yale. So that was that was a, a deep space of insecurity. And at the same time, my girlfriend had broken up with me, which also left a big hole in my life, you know, especially as a teenager. You know, I was 18 at the time. It just... It's, uh, it can be really devastating. So mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking, oh, I need to turn to Jesus because I didn't believe in Jesus. You know, I was thinking, gosh, maybe I should go to the gym more or get a hobby like writing for the newspaper. <laughs> you know, I was just sort of casting about for who knows what. But I was in a philosophy class and we were talking through Descartes. He's famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. Right. From that point, he works through to a proof for God. And I remember just catching in my mind a sense of, well, one, thinking that it was kind of a stupid proof for God, but at the same time thinking, well, what if there is a God? You haven't thought about that in a while. And then kind of the other side of my mind snapping back and saying, no, that's for stupid people. You know, smart Mm. people don't consider those things. They don't need those crutches. But that thought in my head wouldn't go away. You know, well, but you haven't thought about it in a while. Maybe maybe this is something to look to. So like any good millennial, I asked the internet. <laughs> it just seemed like the most natural place to go, especially because I was embarrassed about the fact that I was even asking the question. You know, I remember I would sit in my dorm room, sort of crouched over my giant Dell typing religious search terms into the into the browser and if my roommate came in or anyone else I would slam it down and pretending to be doing my French homework which I was definitely never doing my French homework yeah I thought it was funny in the article when you said it it was like a teenager looking at pornography the way I would you know slam the computer down which maybe that would have actually been more accepted than googling religious terms I don't know although you know my roommate she was very accepting in lots of directions. So I eventually kept coming back again and again to descriptions of Jesus or stories about Jesus. And honestly, I wish I even knew today, like, what the heck web pages was I looking at? But <laughs> I had a strong caricature in my mind of who Jesus was. I, I think I like to reference it this way because it's, it's true. I can't remember if I put this in my article or not, but functionally thinking of him like George W. Bush in a toga. Like, that's sort of that's sort of the mental image I had. A Republican. Uh, sure, and also, and I was fairly progressive politically, as you might guess at the time, uh-huh. so it was not a, an inviting image for me. 
But as I actually encountered Jesus, I was, one, really impressed by his intelligence. Just the way that he could shut down his opponents really appealed to me, which Mm. probably doesn't say great things about my character, actually, how much I enjoyed it. But at the same time, he drew near to and was tender with people that I would have disregarded. I was, I was pretty cruel uh, pre-Christ. I would use my wit to cut people down. Very self-centered. So that, mm. that difference between himself and me also really stood out to me. But I knew, I mean, I knew that Christians were against um, being gay. And I knew that that was a big part of my life. I wanted to marry a woman. And so even though I was sort of becoming more interested in Jesus, at the same time, I knew that was a barrier. But I I also happened to know these two girls on campus with me who identified as Christian and who were dating each other. Is this the one was training to be a Lutheran minister? And one was training to be a Lutheran minister. So that seems, you know, really legit, right? And so mm-hmm. um, we met in marching band because I'm really cool. <laughs> and so I went, you know, I went to see them one day and just tried to ask them, how in the world did they reconcile these things? You know, to me, from afar, they looked irreconcilable. And they assured me, oh, it's all been a big misunderstanding, Mm-hmm. The Bible is definitely in support of monogamous same-sex relationships. And I thought, oh, interesting. So they gave me a packet of information, and I love a packet. So I took this thing back to my room. I was ready to rip through it. And I was excited. I thought, maybe this is going to shed light that I've never seen before. You know, I've never studied it, so maybe I or really have um, been misinformed. And as I read it, it had a really nice internal consistency to it. You know, it, um, it was persuasive in its own way. But when I was pulling up on my computer screen the different texts that it was talking about, I was pretty quickly disenchanted with it. Mm. Um, I'm not good at hardly anything. Like, I just don't have a lot of life skills. But I do know how to read. And I was, <laughs> when I was reading these things that were purporting to make sense of the Bible, I was like, gosh, this just doesn't seem to be lining up. It, mm. it in fact seems like the Bible's pretty clear that God doesn't support gay sex. So that made me frustrated. Mm-hmm. I felt duped, frankly. You know, I, I mm. remember throwing it down in frustration. And so I didn't really know where to go from there. I happened to be in the room of a friend a short time after that, she was a lapsed Catholic, and she was getting something from her room, and I was standing in her doorway. She had a bookshelf by the doorway, and on the bookshelf was a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And so I hadn't been raised on Narnia like other kids, so I didn't. <laughs> the Lewis name didn't jump out at me, but the title of the book certainly jumped out at me. But I was too embarrassed to ask her for it, so I just stole it. I just took it from her, from her bookshelf and put it into my bag. Um, And I was reading that between classes one day because it was easier to do than my homework. And I suddenly became aware that not only is there a God, but that he is holy. Now, of course, I didn't have that vocabulary, Mm -hmm. but the reality of his perfection, even his size, the fact that he was over me, 
became very real to me. And I mean, I was not a good person. I would lie for fun. I cheated on stuff in high school. I was often cruel. I mean, I was literally reading a stolen book. You know, there was just, (laughs) there was a lot of evidence against me. Mm. And I felt afraid. There There was a fear. But so quickly with that feeling, I suddenly understood that Jesus had put himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me, that he had absorbed it. And that the way out for me, the way into acceptance and away from wrath was to accept what Christ had done for me. And I mean, immediately I knew, I mean, gosh, Christians live in a way that I don't live. I like binge drinking. (laughs) I like getting high. I like the atheistic structural worldview that I've built for myself. I, again, want to spend my life with a woman. Mm -hmm. But it became silly, in a sense, to turn down the best deal I was ever going to get for any of those things, even as huge as they were. I, the Spirit made it real to me just how wonderful the work that Christ had done was and that I couldn't pretend that it wasn't real just because it would mean some life inconveniences. And so, you know, I didn't have um, a KGP in front of me, <laughs> but the natural response was, of course, to pray. And so I, I closed my eyes and <laughs> functionally said something equivalent to, fine, you know, fine, I'll be a Christian. <laughs> that's a new version of the sinner's prayer. Yeah, that's right. Now this, you say the following Sunday, Saturday, Yale Students for Christ hosted a Valentine's Day party and you went to it. Was that crew or connected That's with crew? crew? Yeah, crew oh, okay. at Yale was called Yale Students for Christ. You can imagine that Campus Crusade doesn't play well on an elite. I can, yes. Uh, and yeah, I saw a little advertisement and so I thought, I didn't even know there was a Yale Students for Christ, you know, and so... Mm-hmm. I showed up at their Valentine's party, pretending I was there by accident, but I was definitely there on purpose. You know, and the sophomore girl that greeted me was like, "Hi, I've never seen you before." And I was like, "Um, I just became a Christian two days ago." She sort of had a look on her face, like, "Oh, you know," because that didn't really regularly happen at Yale at that time. And she kind of, you know, she led me over to the group of freshmen who awkwardly welcomed me in. Awkward just because they'd never seen me before, and it was February of the school year. Um, and you know, I just followed them around like a baby quail for the next couple years. And that's how I grew in my sanctification. Mm-hmm. Um, actually the staff weren't even there my freshman year. They were on a leave of absence. So it was functionally a student led movement and they were so gracious to me. I mean, I was nothing like them culturally in so many ways. I didn't know all the cool youth group kid cues and when you hug and when you sit and what songs you sing, all that kind of stuff. But no one ever made me feel embarrassed or ashamed about what I had come from. They were, they were just excited for me. And that you said they gave you a paperback Bible, they answered your obnoxious questions, and they invited you to Bible study where two juniors led, us, led you through a passage in Ephesians. 
Yeah, we were studying Ephesians that year. Actually, at Yale, we always do Ephesians with the freshmen because it's such a good foundation uh-huh. in semester. We just studied it in my women's Bible study. It just covers so many good things. Yeah, it does. And there was a girl named Sylvia who was leading that study. And she came around. She was my first mentor, my first deep Christian friend. I remember thinking after like the second Bible study, I wonder who this girl's best friend is because I'm going to shove her out of the picture. I'm just going to, I just need to get really close to the Sylvia girl because she seems (laughs) great. (laughs) I had a coffee date with her. I'm like, so who's your best friend? And she was like, well, I don't really have a best friend. And I was like, huh, well, good for her. Now you do. Yeah, exactly. And so she was, she was just like the unending source of grace to me. And actually, mm. she told me a couple years after, after that time that I would ask her questions and scripture would just spring to her mind that she didn't even know that she knew. And I was thinking that was just how the Lord provided for the both of us, provided yeah. her an opportunity to minister to me, and also provided mm-hmm. for me to get God's words to help me figure out my new situation. And, you know, it was entirely new. I needed a lot of help. And so you still lead a Bible study at Yale? Did so unfortunately, I'm no longer at Yale. Okay. I love Yale. So I lived there for 12 years, four mm-hmm. years as a student, four years um, working for a law firm while I volunteered for crew and then four years on staff at crew there. But when my husband got a financial professional job, we moved up to Boston, which had a regional office at the time. So now I'm on campus at BU, but I do regularly give away free copies of mere Christianity. You do. I do. Yeah. Sort of. (laughs) That's appropriate. I like that. And I love that book. How could it's you not? So in your article, you the next thing you said is that, thus I had to learn my first lesson of the Christian life, how to obey before I understood. Well, it became pretty clear after I accepted Christ that my attractional patterns to women were not going away. I mean, I guess I didn't, have any expectations, but after being a Christian for a couple weeks, a couple months, I noticed I was still, I was still attracted to women. But I also had known from my previous study and also from looking at the scriptures again and again, that marrying a woman was no longer appropriately in my future, that pursuing same-sex sexual relationships were not God's will for me. But I had no idea why. I still couldn't understand the logic of it. So even though I knew what the command was, it, it troubled me. And I think that that was a grace of God to give me that season. Because it forced me to press into Him as opposed to pressing into my understanding. Because I think what we all love to do is submit to something only after we have fully understood and fully agreed. And in that way, we often make ourselves like God. Like, I'm going to only obey what I think Mm -hmm. is good, what I think Mm -hmm. is right. I think that's true in my life, too. I mean, I was raised Christian, and I fully understood the gospel and gave my life to Christ, but... 
Um, I also did whatever I wanted during high school and college as I intellectually tried to figure out if this religion was true. Right. And if, if I was going to, in fact, give him lordship of my life. It's a, it's a fundamentally important question of can you trust him? Because he asks us things. I mean, some of the things he asks us, we all agree are good and nice, even if we don't do them. You know, serve the poor, pray for your friends, be kind to each other. But some of the things he asks us are not only difficult, but even distasteful. And especially around sexual ethics today, at least some of the ways that God's words are caricatured, but even some of them fundamentally as they are, just hit us as backward or wrong. And how do you sacrifice something so important to yourself when it doesn't feel right? How do you follow, how do you give such a big part of your humanity away, if that's really what you're doing, but how do you set it aside if you don't understand? I like that you use the word sacrifice. In your article, you, t- you bring up the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Well, because how, how is he able to do that? I think it comes back to trust. Something that is beautiful in Abraham's story is that we get to see him develop over time. I mean, he's certainly always a man of faith in, in some level. He leaves the land of his father um, to follow a god that his family had never worshipped. But at different times, we also see him afraid. You know, when he goes into Egypt and pretends that Sarah's not his wife. He receives the promise for God, but when it seems to be taking too long... He works out that, he and Sarah work out that whole deal with Hagar that goes badly. So we see him faithful yet failing along the way. But then finally when Genesis 22 comes around, I believe that's where it is. When Isaac is a boy and old enough to talk, old enough to walk, old enough to carry things. When the promise seems sure, then God asks him this thing that, I mean, surely it seemed crazy. But we don't see Abraham waver. And it's not like the biblical author was afraid to show us that. They had showed us Abraham wavering in the past. I have to conclude, especially because of the way the author of Hebrews talks about it, that he understood that no matter what happened, he was going to get Isaac back, even if it needed to be resurrection from the dead. That Abraham had moved to a place where he knew, not just in his head, But deep in his bones, he knew that God was trustworthy. And that's the question I had to answer for myself. I think it's the question we have to each answer when it comes to the hardest places to obey is, can we trust him? Mm -hmm. Is he good, not just in a faraway ontological sense, but is he good to us? And if we can't answer that in the affirmative, I don't think we're going to succeed in a life of joyful obedience. Yeah. You said that slowly you came to understand that making you straight wasn't the answer. That's right. Well, I think um, I had a caricature in my mind about what the Bible said about homosexuality. But over time, as I looked at it, 
I realized that attractions themselves were never what was prohibited. Now, certainly acting out on your attractions is prohibited. And we know from the Sermon on the Mount that lust in your heart has the same moral weight, that looking at a woman in order to lust after her. Normally, women have to put that in a different case, but in my, in my uh, situation, it, it was still appropriate. So I knew, right, that if I were engaging in some sort of fantasy life, that that was doing the same thing in my heart as acting on it. But there's profoundly a level where God doesn't care whether you're attracted to men or to women or to potted plants. Like, what we're called to is faithfulness. Faithfulness in our thought lives, faithfulness with our bodies, and that if we are unmarried, the faithful state is one of celibacy. Now, that does not mean sexual repression, pretending that we're not sexual beings, but it is an honoring of God with our sexuality of saying, this gift of my sexuality that you've given me is a good gift, and it has incredible power, and it speaks about who you are. And the only reason I would say no to exercising it is because you are more beautiful, and you are more worthy. And if God has called us into a marriage, then he will equip us for that marriage, for however long that season is. I mean, marriage is rarely a permanent state. Most people don't end up dying at the exact same moment of their spouses. So when we treat marriage as some end, some goal, I think we do a disservice to the fact that both singleness and married state allow us to experience God's goodness and allow us to image God in the world. And so it doesn't matter if you're straight or gay or anything in between. The Spirit can empower you to live in those states. So, for example, when God called me to marry my husband, Andrew, he didn't need to make me attracted to every man in order to be faithfully married to one. Hmm. As far as I'm concerned, talking to my straight married female friends, um, being attra- the ability to be attracted to many men is not particularly helpful in their marriages. <laughs> At the same, on, on some level, we have, a, we have the same task. When, whenever I or one of my female friends who's married, whenever we notice we're attracted to someone who's not our spouse, we need the power of the Spirit to say no to temptation and to say yes mm-hmm. to God. So I'm not having to do anything that different from other people in terms of being married right now. That doesn't mean that the life of a same-sex attracted Christian is exactly the same for someone who isn't. But there are more similarities than sometimes we have been willing to talk about. Hmm. I want to go back to something you said. What do you think? You said our sexuality speaks about who God is. It tells us something about God. What do you think it tells us? Well, there's a lot of different, as you can imagine, I read about this quite a lot. So I've come, <laughs> I've come across a lot of different people trying to tap into what exactly it says. But one of the things that I found, I find most profoundly persuasive 
is that one of God's favorite images, metaphors, for his relationship to his people is a sexual relationship that is between a male partner and a female partner, most often a husband and a wife. And that's not just something we see in Ephesians 5. We do see it there very clearly, where the mystery of the husband and the wife is the mystery of Christ in the church. But it recurs everywhere in Scripture, um, including in Revelation, the final consummation of everything will be that wedding supper of the Lamb, as it's sometimes referred to. But we see in the Old Testament as well, God talks about himself being a husband and his people being a bride. And what's interesting is that there are times when God is comfortable taking female language about himself, like when he's referring to motherhood. So talk about nursing Jacob at his breasts or carrying Israel in his womb. But he never, ever is the female partner in that metaphor of marriage. That there's something really profound about the difference between God and his people. So there's a difference between male and female, but that there's a profound unity that comes in that relationship. And that our sexuality, a part of what it does is express how deep the longing is or should be as God's people for God And in fact, even how deep God's longing is for us to be reunited to us. That there is a satisfaction in being united with him. And so I think, I was just reading this in uh, Christopher West. He's a Catholic theologian. He was describing how, because of that reality, the single life can bear witness to the fact that the resurrection is real. Because what it's saying is, the only reason I would turn down the bliss of marriage here is because I believe that there is a better marriage to partake of, and I will, in my new body, partake of that better marriage. That there will be a pleasure and a joy there that this marriage on earth only points to. And we don't want to denigrate marriage, of course. It is powerful. It is beautiful. It is a good thing. But in the end, it's only a token of something to come. It's only a picture or a shadow. It's not the fullness. And it and it wasn't designed to be. I'm glad you brought up singleness too, because you said something really insightful in this article. It says, unless we cast a vision for full-bodied, joyful family life amid the church, celibacy will look like a dead end. And you're talking about... Um, that in the context of many believers, for many believers, faithfulness to God will entail a commitment to lifelong celibacy. But if kind of the only thing they see lifted up in the church is a heterosexual nuclear family, then where do they fit in the body? I mean, we're just as complicit on this within crew sometimes, the way we get in front of a crowd of students at Summer Project and elbow each other joking about maybe you'll find your spouse here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we do it in good fun, but there can be a pressure, right, that um, one of the key signals of the Christian life, that you are succeeding, that you are blessed, is that you find your spouse, who, by the way, also has to be your best friend, always. <laughs> now, if we were in the Old Testament, you could understand how profound the family was. It was the the 
carrier of the family name. It was the carrier of the land inheritance, which was a sign of God's blessing. But once we move into the new covenant, Jesus explodes the marriage metaphor. He actually shifts it and intensifies it such that both the single life and the married life are needed in the church and honored in the church. In fact, the early church considered the state of being unmarried superior to that of marriage. So we've kind of, we've created mm-hmm. an unbiblical gap in our churches. We should be celebrating the state of singleness and families and singles should be dynamically relating to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. But instead, we often experience families sort of siloing off themselves. And so singles are left with a loneliness that's inappropriate in Christ. A single friend pointed out to me recently what you're saying. She said there was a time in church history where being single and taking a vow of celibacy was the most noble thing you could do. Exactly. It was honored. I think we honor it theoretically, but we can often badger single people about when they're going to get married. And we, we don't do a good mm-hmm. job necessarily of looking out for them, bringing them into our lives. So I think if, if it would become more plausible, as Ed Shaw says, for a same-sex attracted believer to think, I can do this. In Christ, I can do this. If they see other single people in the church already there who are thriving, who aren't lonely, but who are fulfilled people. So this is at the end of your article, you say, the community God calls us to be one of intimacy, affection, truth, and grace is his tool for keeping us, shaping us, and preparing us for being in his presence forever. Whether we're called to marriage or singleness, every story of transformation in Christ is meant to happen in this community. That's why it's not a story of becoming straight, which has never truly happened. And is beside the point, it's the story of becoming whole, which is happening every day. Can you speak about that becoming whole every day? Well, I think that there's been a narrative about homosexuality in the church in the past that it is, if someone experiences it, that it, that is their biggest problem, that it isolates them from God in a way that other sins do not, that it even isolates them from normalcy in a way that other lifestyle patterns maybe do not. And so for a while, a lot of people in the church thought the answer to that, well, some of them thought the answer to that was just to exile gay people, pretend they didn't exist or to vilify them. But others thought, well, then the answer must be to be straight. The answer to your problem is to become straight. But the Bible, (laughs) it communicates to me that my biggest problem is that I was born into rebellion I was born dead in my sins. I was born lost, separated from the God who made me and the God who loves me. So my sexuality, my sexual brokenness is just a symptom of a much bigger reality. And in fact, we're all sexually broken. Mm -hmm. So when he calls me to himself, well, he gives me the gift of relating to him him, the triune God, but I can't escape that he gives me the gift of his family at the same time. I, I inherit these brothers and sisters who are also in Christ, who live in front of me, 
what it means to be a community of repentance, of confession, of thanksgiving, of joy. Like, I can't, I can't just read about it in the Bible. The Bible's an immense gift, and it's God's Word inspired. But His church is also where I need to see Him. It's where I need to see His Spirit at work. It's where I learn about what it looks like really in the flesh to practice the things that the Word is talking about. And so I, my levels of brokenness were so much deeper than just my sexual orientation. Even my sexual brokenness was so much deeper. And so it's over time as I've been faithfully in communion with the church and individually relating to Christ, of course, but but with the saints that I have I have been made whole. The Spirit has corrected me and formed me and shaped me, and it feels always too slow, always so much slower than it should be. But at the same time, when I look back, I think, my goodness, he really is, he really is changing me, and he's really changing us. Like I think about some of the friendships I've had in Christ that are longer term, and I think, wow, look, he's really doing something here. There's newness. Hmm. There is transformation I mean, that's incredible. So I expect you've had all kinds of conversations with all kinds of people since this, since your articles have come out. In fact, in your article, you said, I've had gay and lesbian people question whether I was ever really attracted to women. I've had straight Christians proudly declare that God healed my homosexuality. You've had people try to use you as a mascot for something you don't actually embody. And I think what I'm wondering about is, you know, your story is just one story and there's, there's so many, everyone's story is unique. You know, there's, um, heterosexual Christians who are married to the opposite sex. There's, um, a Christian who's same sex attraction and, and has chosen celibacy. There's um, Christians who have interpreted the Bible, like your Lutheran minister friend who identifies as a Christian and yet has interpreted the scriptures in such a way that, well, at that point, I don't know where she is today, but at that point, her interpretation of scripture was, it's okay. Right. And this is my girlfriend and maybe she married her. I don't know. But I think, how do we pursue unity when there's so many different narratives, there's no formula. There isn't. Wouldn't it be so nice? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it would be, but it just doesn't seem to be the way God's working it out. Oh, no, that's so true. And yet we're called to unity. I mean, that's what been my biggest takeaway from Ephesians, unity in the body. But it's never a unity of sameness. It's never a unity of sameness. It's a unity of oneness, of togetherness. Mm-hmm. But God loves to make community through diversity. I mean, to begin with, He is three persons, one God. But even when He created humanity, when He looked at Adam, He said, the only thing that wasn't good in the world before sin was that Adam was alone. And so He made it a, a human exactly like Him, but different in gender, different in sex. So even there, there was a unity, humankind, but of diversity, different sexes. And from that family, 
flowed every type of diversity in the world such that we're told that around the throne there's going to be people of every tribe and nation and tongue, or that final unity through mm-hmm. diversity. And I do think, especially on a topic like this that is so, that can be really heavy, that for a lot of people contains past hurts and traumas for a variety of reasons, our, our only hope of unity is in the person of Jesus himself. That beautiful passage in Ephesians 2 214 that says he is our peace talking about Jesus mm-hmm. but then you read those participles this peace was violent he had to break down the wall of hostility he had to mm. kill the commandments he had to abolish the law I mean that's a peace that looks um, pretty intense he has and does break through so many things so that we can have a peace not only with God but with each other and so I think as we try to understand all the different perspectives that we're coming from the different stories that we bring in even the different hopes and fears that we have the place we have to rally to is Christ both what he says in his word but also the compassion of his manner on earth and we need those things We need those things desperately, both of them, in him, if we're going to hope to move forward in a healthy way. At the beginning of our conversation, you said that you experienced an identity crisis early in life over this, having this girlfriend, having this boyfriend, then having this girlfriend, and then going to Yale, and then thinking about God, and who am I, and who am I going to be? What, how has your journey and your relationship with Christ resolved that identity crisis? Well, I think there's a, a deep rest in knowing that at the end of the day, I belong to God, that my main identity is as his child. You know, so I've, I've got wonderful things in my life. I've got a great husband and a great child, and I, I really enjoy my position with crew, and I have a house over my head, all these things, right? But any of those things could be taken away from me. Ultimately, they will be in some level in death. But I can't lose him. And when he looks at me, he doesn't love some future version of me. He looks at me right now with joy, with a deep love for who I am, because he made me and because he's redeeming me. After that, I really believe in the Great Commission. I really believe in those passages of scripture that talk, that teach us that we've each been given gifts to serve the church, to build up the church. And so I think secure my relationship with him and with a task that is both urgent and worthy. It doesn't ask me to be something I'm not, but to rely on his spirit with what he's put right in front of me. It's given me so much security. It's given me so much peace. And obviously we still have to think about major decisions or you know, it's not like it's taken out all the stress from my life. Mm-hmm. But it is a foundation in Christ 
that is firm to stand on. You know, as Christians coming to to the topic of LGBT ministry needs, there can be a lot of fear. There can be a lot of fear that we're going to mess up the conversation, fear that we are going to turn some away, someone away from Christ forever, or a fear culturally that this is going to be a world unsafe to raise our children in, unsafe to be a Christian in. And I just want to encourage us in three ways that we don't have to be afraid. Um, first, we don't have to be afraid because God loves to use the weak things of the world. And so if we feel weak in this conversation, we are exactly where we need to be to be used by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like to use the haughty or the people who have their stuff together. He likes to use the broken and the fumbling. Second, I think we don't have to be afraid because just like in the first century, just like in the fifth century, just like in the tenth century, just like now, it's the gospel that has the power to save. So even though this issue runs exactly against the grain of what our culture says, the gospel is still powerful and beautiful. And people will give their lives to Christ, even people who we think would never be a prime candidate, because he is worth it, because he really is beautiful. And I think a third reason we don't have to be afraid is that even as our culture gets darker, the light will only shine more brightly. I mean, 60 years ago, it was not missional to just be a woman married to her husband for 30 years and have her kids. Today, that lifestyle actually needs a little bit of explanation in a lot of (laughs) corners. I mean, we have an opportunity to witness to the gospel just by living our normal lives, that us being us, faithful to God's word, can be a way for us to demonstrate God's goodness, his plan for humanity to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, that they're going to look at us and think, well, that's weird. I need to ask about that. And I think that's exciting. I think we're entering a missional moment that has so much potential to, to demonstrate Christ's goodness in a new generation. And so I think we don't need to be afraid. He has totally got this. He loves to work through his church, and here we are. We're ready. I mean, well, we're not ready, but he is.